prayer draws us closer to God, the more or the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I realize prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes us. It changes us to being like Him. Uh, it draws us into that, that fellowship with the Father. But it, there's something else. Prayer draws us together as His children. Where we come together and united we go before God. And that is the topic of today when we come into or we continue on in the book of Acts, the communal prayer, praying with united hearts. So if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 4, we're going to begin reading in verse 23. Last time I tried to preach with one of a mask on and I thought I was going to uh, suffocate by the time it was over. I thought I'd try again today and no, it, it just didn't work. I, I'm sorry, I hope I'm not giving you any germs, but I really just can't do it. <laughs> so let us read together Acts chapter 4, beginning verse 23, and read down through 31. And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? And the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Heavenly Father, we have read your word together. Now, Father, we ask that you speak to us, speak to each one individually, but speak to us also as a church your body, your local manifestation here. And I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Back in the States when I was pastoring, there was an elderly man that could rarely come to church because of his health. But uh, one couple brought him one Sunday morning, and I was fairly new at the church, and he heard me preach. 
and he came up to me, and he said, you're not much of a preacher. You never even stepped on my toes. Said a good preacher steps on people's toes. So he came back another time a little bit later, and when he left, he went, you just don't step on people's toes. Well, today's one of those great days where I get to offend everybody. And I really sometimes, I don't mean to be, but I come across as offensive because I'm kind of blunt. And you know that tone of voice thing, you know, where people, that's a lot of the communication that adds to the words? I never get that right. My wife will ask me, well, what are you angry about? I'm not angry. I was just replying. Those were just words. And I struggle with that. I really do. And I have, you know, since childhood. Um, I don't know why. I just don't get that tone of voice sometimes. I also had another friend that came up to me one day. And he goes, hey, Steve and I were talking about you the other day. And now it's a worrisome thing. Because <laughs> you wonder, why is their life so bad they're having to talk about me? Trey looked at me. He said, we're trying to figure out why. I can say something, and people laugh it off, but when you say something, they get really angry about it. I don't know if it's that tone of voice, or sometimes I'm just blunt. And it just comes out kind of hitting hard, especially with emails. I'm just using words to try to communicate something. It doesn't come out quite right. And so I struggle with that. So this morning, I'm just going to say what's on my heart. And if you're not offended this morning, I'm sorry. I really tried. Because when it comes to communal prayer, and I read about the church in the Bible, and I see us, and I see the church in most places in the world, I think, we fall so short. When a preacher preaches on communal prayer and I see what's happening in my life, I should be offended because I'm missing so much. And when I do not use the word communal prayer lightly, uh, what does that mean? When I say the word communal prayer, and I intentionally use that word communal instead of corporate, there is a reason for that. But let's just read this nice dictionary meaning. It comes from the British Broadcasting Company. I mean, here's a BBC definition of communal prayer. Communal prayer means to pray with others. This can take place during church services, or it can be a structured meeting of Christians who have arranged to pray together. This type of prayer can help Christians connect with each other as well as God and help strengthen the Christian community. So that's a nice, nice definition. And uh, I think about that word, community, communal, I don't use it lightly. Because a communal prayer is a prayer, or anything is communal, it's shared by all members 
of the community. How often are hearts really shared in prayer? Another term for it or another way, it says something that is for common use. But how common really are our united hearts? We have the word common, which comes from, you know, or the word community. Uh, how many of you really heard me use that word a lot? I actually don't. I, I, when I talk about the church, I talk more about the family aspect. We have the word common, community, a commune. That's where people live together. Communion. That's where that word comes from, to have in common. John has shared very openly, and, and he's passionate about not using the word communion for it, but to use the Lord's Supper. We were talking about how do we do this in our church. I'm like, well, let's make it a supper. We've made it the Lord's wafer. Uh, it's like it's no longer the supper. The early church, it was a meal. It was a feast. And it was something in common that they had. And it united them. It needs to be a uniting force in our lives. A true community that is where you live. It is where your heart is. It's shared values one day i was uh, when i was taking a special course at the school where i uh, uh, got my phd they were having this special meeting and it was all on diversity and it's a special course called uh let's see preparing future professional faculty they called it pf squared it was all about getting Ph.D. students ready to teach in the university setting. And so here is their diverse group. They had a Native American, which was, okay, we've got a Native American female lesbian. We had a white male gay. They had an Hispanic male Queer. Q. And do you know what they talked about the whole time? Representing the gay community. And of course, I had a few words to say to the person who set it up. It's like, are you really getting diversity in there? Because the main focus, even though they were from different ethnic groups, they had a shared value that they wanted to fight for their sexual preference. All of them had that one thing, and is that they were drawn to the same gender. And so I came back and said, is that really a diverse group, even though they're from different ethnic groups? But they had a community because they had a shared value of actis, acti, being actively fighting for, activists. They were fighting for that group and that community. That's where the heart was. The community is where you live and where your heart lives. You can't be a member 
and live somewhere else. You're not really a member of that community. I can't be a member of the community in Debertson and live in Budapest. I can have connections. But is it truly life together? That's a term I do use a lot. Because that is the Christian community. It's life together. It's our shared walk with Jesus Christ. And this is where I'm going to offend some. So get ready. I'm going to be offensive. If you have not made the decision to walk with Christ, you're not truly yet part of the Christian community. Because there's a shared value. And it's your choice. It's not that we're excluding you. It's that you haven't made that choice to walk with others with Christ. And there's a lot of people that get really close to that line and they walk, they're going through life, they may go to church, they may have friends who are Christians, and they find friendship. They find support. Uh, Rami and I were just talking about this that th- this morning. There's a lot of people that may come to church because they like the music. They may come and hear the music. They may come and find the friendship. They may come and find support. And we invite you to do that. We welcome you. And we want to support you. And we want to be your friend. But there comes a point where you have to step across that line and say, yes, I'm following Jesus. I am part of the Christian community. There comes that point where you have to step across the line and say, yes, I'm following Jesus. And I've known a lot of people walked really close to that line and then they seem to kind of walk with foot in each way and then they're pretty soon they're over here. They're not sure when they stepped across that line. But the point is, you've got to get there because you've got to make that point or have that, that decision to follow Christ in your life, to connect. When we talk about the life together, the Christian fellowship the christian community it's got the idea of unity we're walking on this road in unity communal prayer is praying in unity and unity and true community is something that is rarely attained Why? Why is it so rarely attained? What does it take to be in true unity? How much of ourselves do we need to peel away so that we fit well with others? Oh, there's times where I realize I struggle to fit, not because of others, but because of me. There's things I have to give up. There's things that I think should be that it's like, nah, it doesn't really have to be that way. You have to give up your preferences for the good of the community. You have to give up how you like to do things for the good of the community. 
And sometimes you end up playing the drums, right, Rami? For the good of the community, even though it's not what you grew up with. Because it's good for the church. And when it's good for the church, it's good for us too. Because it pulls us in to that unity. And it's so hard to attain because of our selfishness and our own humanity. Us not wanting to give up our desire, our wants, our feelings. And you have to turn the focus to the community. Now last week, John really focused on the courage. And most Bibles will talk about this prayer being the prayer for boldness. But since John was really able to cover, or he covered courage last week, I'm not going to focus on the boldness part. Today, it's a really good day. Open your Bible. um, Have it there, because I want to analyze this prayer. Yeah, I see the PhD students like, yes, we get to analyze something. It's like, yeah, I love analyzing things. I love analyzing data. I love pulling information out of data points. You know, it's just like, it's a really cool thing for me. So open up and have it open. And let's keep the Bibles open and look at this prayer. And we're going to need to look at larger sections than what's going to fit on the screen. That's why I say you're probably going to need yours open. Let's start, and you look at where this passage starts, verse 23. When they were released, what does that mean? When were they released? Well, they had been arrested. They stood before the council. And Peter, he just had the audacity to say, in Christ alone. There is salvation in no other name. Peter had stood there and he had that courage to say, Christ alone, they released them under threats. So what was the early church's reaction to the threats? Where did they turn? If you talk in the name of Jesus, I'm going to arrest you. Don't you ever do that again. What are you going to do? Sorry, Sarah, I just... (laughs) But see, that's what's happening. I mean, these were people of authority right in their face saying, you never, ever teach in the name of Jesus again. John, don't you ever teach in the name of Jesus again. What are you going to do? They turned to their friends. They went to their friends. And I honestly believe it doesn't say their friends were praying. The early church was a church of prayer, and I believe the friends were praying, but they went to their friends, and they told what happened. I said, well, they threatened us. They said we can't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. So then, they just naturally reacted by lifting their voices together. Look at that. They lifted their voices together to God. That's in the plural. They were united. Together is that key word. They lifted their voices together. They were united in prayer. They had united hearts and minds. 
when they came together to pray, they truly had communal prayer. Lifting up voices together, united. I've been wrestling with something for a while. And, and my wife could contest, confirm this, not contest it. Boy, that's when one of those times where the wrong word comes out. Confirm <laughs> that I have talked with her many times and, and, and we've shared, I've shared with this, this wrestling that's happening in my heart right now before we even formed this group, before we decided to preach through the book of Acts. And I find it, just the ironic that I get to preach on this passage. John was gone a week, so we missed a week in the rotation there. So I ended up on this passage. This should have been John's. <laughs> but I wrestle with the question, do we really pray? When we're praying together as a church, are we truly united or are we praying as individuals in near physical proximity? And I've been wrestling with it now for, for quite some time. How often do we really unite hearts in prayer? Versus how many times do we voice prayers? Or, here's me and... and just in transparency and honesty, someone is praying out loud and my mind wanders. Oh, even this morning, today, was a perfect example. While John was praying... I thought, oh man, I, I'm not going to wear my mask. I better tape down my microphone. Great job, Pastor Gary. That's a way to unite in prayer when you're preaching on communal prayer. <laughs> I'm sorry. I failed you all this morning because my heart wasn't united. This is a question I've been wrestling with for a while. The unity in prayer. Are we truly praying together? Are we truly united? Or are we praying as individuals in near physical proximity? The church lifted their voices, plural, in unity. They lifted it up together and they're praying. And what was their focus? Look at, the, look at what they focused on. What did they say? They started out focusing on God. Their focus was God, sovereign Lord. That was the first things out of their mouth. What does sovereign Lord mean? Okay, let's go back to analysis. What does the word sovereign mean? Besides an ancient British coin that they used to use back in the 1800s. 
sovereign means a supreme ruler. The sovereign is one with supreme authority. The sovereign is the acknowledged or the known leader. A king is sovereign over his nation. He is the supreme ruler. And when they turn to God, they say, supreme ruler. They recognize the supremacy of God. And they look to Him as the supreme authority, the acknowledged leader. What does Lord mean? Lord is one who has authority or control or power over others. A master, a chief, or a ruler. You're the supreme ruler, one who has to be obeyed. See, they're recognizing God as supreme ruler who has to be obeyed. He has to be followed. He's the master. He's the chief. He's the authority. That's who they turn to. In the midst of the threats, don't ever preach in the name of Jesus. They lift up their voices and they recognize the supremacy of God. And it's God and God alone. And it's His authority. And He is the one to be obeyed. But look how they continue to pray. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. See, they recognize Him. He's the supreme authority. He's the one to be obeyed. He's the creator. They recognize Him as the creator of the whole universe. But then they say, who through the mouth of David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. They recognize God as the foreteller, the one who has arranged this, the one who was able to say, this is what's going to happen. You know, the closing chapters of Isaiah, beginning at the uh, verse 40 on through 66, Isaiah uses the word creator or creation, the Hebrew word bara, which means to bring something out of nothing, more than all the rest of the Bible. If you really want to know God is creator, turn to Isaiah 40 through 66. Because Isaiah uses that more because he says, Any God who's not the creator is not worthy of worship. But he does something else. He calls together like a court. Come together. Let's hear this. Who is it that said what's going to happen? Who is it that knows what is happening? And who is it that knows what's going to happen? If your God can't do that, you're not worshiping the true God. Well, you talk about being offensive. Isaiah offended his whole nation. <laughs> he just like he, he told everybody. You're worshiping things that aren't the true God, because only the true God is the creator. Only the true God is the foreteller. And look how they prayed back God's own words. How'd they know? God had already foretold this. And they recognize that. And they pray back God's own words. 
Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? And the kings of the earth set set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. They recognized it was the word's fulfillment. They recognized their day and time. They were fulfilling the prophecy that was given. But it was the God that could foretell and say what's going to happen. He's the God that's worthy of worship. And it was God's plan. They recognized all this happened just as the Bible said it was going to. And it was God's plan. And all these people, they're raging against God. They're raging against Jesus Christ. He's God's anointed. And he said that all those people gathered to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Well, there's a lot of times we think we know what we're doing and we're doing something really special. Ah, no, God's already got it planned out. (laughs) It was God's plan. He's the one that ordained this to happen. You know what? That takes us right back to sovereign Lord. <laughs> That's right. Their opening term was it's the supreme ruler who made a plan, and that plan came about just as he said. Now, the next slide. <laughs> God knows what has happened. God knows what is happening. God knows what will happen in the future. And God knows what would happen under different circumstances. Oh, you remember Jesus was teaching and he's weeping over the cities and he's crying out. Tyre and Sidon. He said, if. Sodom and Gomorrah had seen those miracles. They would have repented. And of course, that leaves me with the question, why didn't they get to see the miracles? God knows. And Jesus was able to say, this is what would have happened. And there's times in our lives when we don't understand what God's doing. And there's times where it seems like bad things happen, but you have no idea What would happen if that hadn't happened? Well, God knows that. You know, in science fiction, there's a big thing about parallel universes. You know, there's there's a thousand different Earths. And and you've got somebody that looks like you and talks like you, has your name on another Earth or something like that. And God knows what all those hundreds of thousands of Earths could have been. I don't believe that there's other Earths with just one. But he knows what all the different circumstances would have brought about. And out of all those possibilities, he said, this one's the best. And sometimes it's hard to understand. But from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, and the, the writer of Ephesians, Paul, he's talking about us being selected by God. But he says something there, that all things work according to the counsel of His will. That's everything. Even when bad things happen, there's a purpose. 
It's not just so that bad things happen. There's a purpose behind everything. And the church, you see there in verse 27 and 28, that the church knew, they knew they were living out God's plan. They knew they were living out what God said would happen. In true unity, the church proclaimed God as sovereign, as Lord, creator, revealer, orchestrator, planner. And if you go through there, you can make that list a whole lot longer if you want to. But see how they're recognizing God now, how far are we into this passage? And so far, all they've talked about is God. All they've done is recognize God. Their focus has been God. They haven't asked for anything. The first two-thirds of the prayer was just praising God. I did one of those little word counts just for fun. I thought, how, what's the percentage so I copied and pasted into a Word document and I blocked off the prayer up to this point through verse 28. It was 110 out of the 155 words. That's 70%. More than two-thirds of their prayer was just focused on praising God and recognizing who He was. Recognizing His Word. I think that's why they were able to unite. Because their focus wasn't themselves. Their focus was God. And you look at that and I read that and I wonder, why do we fall so short? They were two-thirds of the way into their prayer before they make their request. And look at verse 29. And now, Lord... Look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What was their request? First thing they said was, Lord, look at their threats. Well, okay. Do you think they, they thought, oh, no, God doesn't know what's happening. Hey, God, you better look at that. Hey, do you see what's happening? No, they've already recognized him as sovereign Lord. Lord, see the threats? In light of that, Lord, in light of what's going on, grant to us. Give us the boldness. In light of the threats, give us the boldness to keep preaching. Give us the boldness to keep proclaiming your word. In light of the threats, don't let us back down, God. Because our courage, it's really from God, it's not from us. We turn to him and say, Lord, give us the boldness and the courage to proclaim. Even that comes from God. But I love 
how they say it. Give us the boldness while you keep working. <laughs> Look at this. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. God, while you keep doing your thing, will you keep us on track? Will you give us the boldness? Will you grant to us the boldness to proclaim your word in light of what these people are threatening against us? You just keep doing your thing, God. You keep working, God. And don't let us fail you. I can't tell you how many times I've prayed that prayer. Lord, just don't let me fail you. There's a man by the name of R.G. Letourneau. And uh, my aviation degree is from Letourneau University. R.G. Letourneau was a... At one time, he was second only to Thomas Edison for the number of patents in the U.S. Got his fame for earth-moving equipment, but he was the first one to design and build jackable or sta- uh, jackable oil rigs for working in the Gulf. In fact, he built them for George Bush, the first George Bush who was president when he owns a pot of oil. R.G. Letourneau was known for living on 10% of his income and tithing 90. So one of the things he was known for, but his company was bankrupt. Didn't have any money. It's after World War II. Had an old DC-3 aircraft, and they're flying down to try to get an order for some earth-moving equipment. Talked with a man who was with... R.G. Letourneau on that flight. So in the back of the plane, R.G. Letourneau got down on his knees and he said, Lord, if you want my company, take my company. It's yours anyways. But please don't let me disgrace your name. He didn't care about the material possessions. He didn't care about the company with his name on it. He cared that the name of the Lord would not be disgraced. Ironically, he got to the place and the people put in an order for some earth-moving equipment, some scrapers. He had to tell them, I'd be glad to do that, but I don't have any money. I don't have money to buy the materials to make them, and so they paid ahead. And it was the first uh, earth scrapers that they used rubber tires on. You know, it was, a, it was quite an invention for them or an advancement that God worked out because he got on his knees and he said, Lord, don't let me disgrace your name. And I think we need to do that too. Lord, grant us the boldness. Don't let us disgrace your name. See, they took their prayer and they turned it right back to God. They turn their whole focus right back to God. You realize, look at this. The only real request they had. What was the one real request? Was to grant us boldness. Lord, look. In light of that, grant us the boldness while you keep working. 
the church, their focus was on God. They were saying, Lord, keep hallowing the name of Jesus. You know, we talk about our Father or the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer, however you call it. And it starts out, hallowed be thy name. You understand what that's really saying? Is that, Lord, keep making your name holy. Lord, keep making your name holy. Understood to be God. And they're asking God to keep the, the, making Jesus' name holy or hallowed through healing, through signs, through wonders. The whole focus is right back to Jesus Christ. Don't let us fail you, Lord. You keep doing your thing and don't let us fail you, Lord. Told you I'd be offensive. How often do we really pray a prayer like that individually? And how often do we really pray a prayer like that as a church? With hearts united. Lord, just keep doing your thing and don't let us fail you. And they're praying. And what happened? The whole room begins to shake. I was sharing with a friend of mine. I said I was reading in the book of Acts about the prayer and the whole room being shaken. I said, oh, how I would just love to be part of that. My friend looked at me and he kind of smiled. He said, I've been part of it twice. Where he had been in a prayer time. Where the Holy Spirit moved so powerfully. That it was shaken. God shook the room. It wasn't the people. But how often do we unite our hearts so that God could shake that room? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came and just gave them that extra power. But what did He give them that extra power for? <laughs> this is so awesome. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. That's what He empowered them to do. They said, Lord, grant to us that we don't fail. And he gave them the Holy Spirit and they kept proclaiming so that they wouldn't fail. God was there. God was empowering them. God was giving them what they needed to face the threats and the persecution that was to come. Further imprisonment and beatings and eventually death was to come in the future. But as this began, the persecution began. God gave them the power to face it, to Keep proclaiming His Word with boldness. Peter kept preaching. They kept going to the temple to pray. They kept going house to house. And God kept working. God kept working. 
And we look at this example and come to the final question. Why do we fall so short? Why do we fall so short of the example they set for us? John and I take being pastor very, 